Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cot Red Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking about true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. I've got one pretty good dog story for you guys to start this off. So it was around last week. We were just hanging out on the back porch in the morning time, I guess. Oh, Megan's always hanging out, drinking her coffee, of course. That's my favorite the, thing to do. The dogs run around, and, and Derby patrols the fence. Back She's the and protector. Forth, back and forth. And I was out there this time, and I was just... I glanced over at Derby, and she had this, like, foot-long snake in her mouth, shaking it back and forth. Yeah. I was like, Derby? That's a good girl. What the hell are you doing? And she let go of him, and he slithered underneath the fence, but it's just... Then Jesse decapitated him. Yeah. With a It turned out to be a speckled... uh, King snake. King snake, yeah, which I didn't even need to kill, because I guess they're supposedly... They're the good kind. Yeah, they kill all the other snakes, I guess, that come around and all the rodents and stuff, but sorry. He came into her yard. Fuck around and find out. You damn right. That's a good girl. The other three were just like, what's going on? Yeah. They don't even care. They're worthless. They really are. But she actually brought a snake into our old house. I don't know if we've told y'all this before, but... It was a little bitty tiny one, and we and Megan saw it like slithering around in our bathroom. I lost my shit. Yeah, and there's no way it got in there by itself. She definitely. It had to be her. It's always her. It's always her. She brought the bunny, the live baby bunny, into oh. mom and dad's house when they were keeping her once. Mom called me freaking. I'm a dreamy. It's a bunny. Yeah, and then we got nests in our backyard for bird's nest or whatever that just hang up on our gutter and oh she did kill that baby bird the other week yeah oh i forgot about that i saw it on the ground i tried to keep the dogs away from it time had passed i searched the yard for him because i knew he was too young to fly i couldn't find him anywhere so i let the dogs out and in our back right corner it's just a bunch of old leaves and sticks and such and he made his way that direction, and I glanced over, and Derby was flinging something around. And I was like, drop that! And I ran over there, and she had either broken his neck when she picked him up or when she dropped him. So, Oof. she's a murderer. <laughs> Gosh, and then what, two days ago? So, me and Megan had to both leave around the same time to go to work, and this has happened what, 20 times probably? We'll leave, and then like 10 minutes later, Megan will text me and be like... Did I turn my straightener off? <laughs> <laughs> and I usually check anyways just to see, because she always does this, but I didn't this time. Oh, hush. I do not. <laughs> if we shared our text conversation on Instagram, but it basically went like... No, I didn't check, but I can turn around right now. And I was like, no, it's fine. I'll go back. And he's like, no, it's fine. I'll go back. And I was like, well, I can stop. And he's like, no, you need to go to work. And I was like, you need to go to work. I had literally turned around like the minute you sent that. I was like, oh, you were already like 20 minutes away from the, of the house. So What's your point? <laughs> 
You would have been really late. Thank God I, I know the owners really well. <laughs> so it's fine. But I hadn't worn my hair down or washed it or anything in a while. So the day prior, I had straightened it. And so I was like, I'll just fix it back up and pull it halfway up again. And like in my head, I could see it unplugged, but I was like, oof. Is that from yesterday or is that today I can visually see? And I just, I couldn't remember. And then we saw today on Instagram or somewhere that there's this automatic timing outlet thing that you can use. They must have been listening to our conversation. They or always are. I swear. Everybody's listening. Yeah. Derby. She ain't listening. Would you lay down? Quit, eating, quit trying to eat the litter. When I'm in the shower, I can just see silhouettes, and I don't know if it's her or, or Ripley or both of them with their faces pushing that little cubby door open. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I saw Derby run up the stairs this morning, and I was, like, just hoping that the, the door to the other bedroom was closed because she would have just went after all the recycled kitten. kitty food. Yes, kitten treats. Yes. Homemade kitten treats. Ugh. She's disgusting. Ugh, it stunk in there, too, the other day. I do need to clean it here in a little bit. Well, Megan has a case for us today. I do. Another Arkansas one, correct? Yes. We've been on a roll lately. My next one's going to be Arkansas, too. I'll branch out, then, on the week following. Well, you ready to do this thing? Forever in a day. My sources are mylifeacrime.wordpress.com, the Northwest Arkansas homepage.com, the cinemaholic.com, oxygen.com, southwesttimes.com, todayinfortsmith.com, the Fort Smith Times Record, a podcast called Crime Cast by Revamp, episodes 13 and 14, which this is a very cool little podcast that Scott go they've got going on it's a 501c3 nonprofit revamp actually stands for remember every victim and missing person they've only got a few episodes on there i think there's only like 15 or 16 they don't do it as often as other podcasts but it's like when they have a chance to jump on and talk about somebody on there they will that's pretty cool yeah i've got the american uh, Psychological Association. I got Find a Grave. There's several victims, so I use several Find a Grave sites. Don'tNameThem.org, TheJusticeForNativeAmericanWomen.org, and then I watched on YouTube. It is a snapped notorious episode from the Oxygen Network. Okay. So quite a few. Most of them all kind of said the same thing, give or take, but I still mentioned them. If you Google River Valley Killer, you get two results. The first, more popular and more well-known of the two, is going to be the Connecticut River Valley Killer. And I had never heard of them until last month or so when we were in Rogers for the True Crime Fest. The Connecticut River Valley Killer was active roughly... From 1978 to 1987 in and around Claremont, New Hampshire. The identity of this man was never known, meaning he was never caught. The number of his victims is also unknown. They have about seven that they can connect so far. 
He and the other search result have a few things in common. Both raped, both murdered, both utterly disgusting, both left a survivor. But us here in the Arkansas and surrounding states area, we can rest. Because our River Valley killer was caught and has since passed away in prison. And who is this man that was known to become as the River Valley killer? I will get to that. I think I'm a little biased because to me, Arkansas has some of the most beautiful places to go visit and trek and explore. And a lot of those places have rivers that we can float as well. Megan's really good at getting us lost on trails, too. I do not. <laughs> that one was a loop. I know which one you're talking about. The Arkansas River Valley is in the western, northwestern region of our state. It is more or less the area between the Ozark Mountains and the Washita Mountains. Yes, it's given that name for that area, but it also runs along the Arkansas River. The Tri-Point region is made up of three of our favorite spots to go to. We've got Mount Magazine, Mount Nebo, and Petty Jean Mount, all of which that have different trails ranging in difficulty. We've done several ourselves. Those are three of the most frequently hiked places. If you throw Pinnacle Mountain in there as well, that would be number four. And that was actually Jesse and I's first date, was hiking Pinnacle Mountain there in Little Rock. Yeah, I gave you a side hug. And then you left me. <laughs> the Arkansas River Valley is also home to six other little subdivisions besides the Tri-Peak region, like the Ozark National Forest, and if you go in there, you better know your way around. It has over a million acres itself. Most importantly out of the seven is going to be the Fort Smith metropolitan area. This area is made up of five counties. There's three in Arkansas, two in Oklahoma. Uh, the census in 2021 said that this region alone had 248,000 people as their residents. And I only just mentioned this a little bit because we're going to include a couple of towns Fort Smith and Van Buren that are in that metropolitan area. We're going to go back in time to 1993, and it was a very busy year across the U.S. Bill Clinton had just become the 42nd president. There were the events in Waco, Texas with David Koresh. The NFL introduced the now current free agent system. Sports I threw, ball? I threw that in there for you. Wow. Jurassic Park was released in theaters. Actor and best friend to Keanu Reeves, River Phoenix, died outside of Johnny Depp's Viper Room Club in West Hollywood. In Arkansas, Jesse was a wee pup at a year old. And I had just started kindergarten at the age of five. Old. Whatever. On May 5th, there were three boys, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, who went missing and their bodies would be later found in West Memphis. That, of course, is a whole other ordeal for another time. Unknowingly, a month prior to that, and all the way across the state, 89-year-old Lily Florence Morgan Jones would be fighting for her life. Miss Jones, despite being legally blind, was a very capable elderly woman. She lived on her own, and with the help of friends and neighbors, she got by really without any trouble. Then, on the evening of Saturday, April 10th, 
she heard a knock on her door. She wasn't expecting anything to be dropped off or anyone to be stopping by. With the knock came a man's voice asking to use her phone. She told him no, he wouldn't be allowed. And not even a second later, this man proceeded to kick her door in right off the hinges. This attacker, even if he wasn't already a large man, was going to be too much for Miss Jones to handle. She's blind and she's elderly. Again, those two factors didn't even sway this man. His attack on Lily Jones was awful and it was very brutal. She wasn't just beaten severely, but she was also raped. Just as quick as it happened, he left, leaving Lily Jones on the floor of her bedroom. But she was a strong woman. She wasn't dead. She was just playing possum. It's hard to imagine the kind of panic that she was feeling, especially because while she was laying there, she had to be as still as possible because she didn't want to make a move, make a sound until she was for certain that her attacker had left. She had heard him exit, but she couldn't afford to not be careful. This was his first victim? Known victim or what? And she survived? Yes. Wow. When she was ready to move, she called 911. Fort Smith, Arkansas officers respond to the scene and they thoroughly searched her house, but it would seem as though her assailant was long gone. What was strange to the officers and then the investigators that were called was how it was just a physical attack. There was no other motive. There was no robbery, nothing. I was going to ask if she got a good look at him, but then I just remembered. She's blind. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There really wasn't any evidence left behind by this man besides a semen stain, which wasn't very helpful because it's the 90s and DNA testing just wasn't really a thing. Back in 93, the FBI lab was the only one in the nation with the capability to test, but you have to send a comparison sample with the one you want tested. So there's no database for them to compare to. And why Lily Jones? She was just a blind elderly woman who enjoyed going to church. It was unnerving and just a bit curious. Obviously, she wasn't the best eyewitness, but... Lily was able to tell the police that he wore worker gloves, like a thicker material. And when she felt his face and his hair, she had a gut feeling that she knew him. Things had slowed down a little bit while police were trying to identify Mrs. Jones' attacker. Surely there weren't many offenders out there who lie to harm elderly women, but they were coming up cold on any leads. What police couldn't have predicted to be a lead or really want to be a lead happened two months after Lily's attack. June 20th was a Sunday, and just before the morning service, Pastor Jay Wells and some of the parishioners noticed that 58-year-old Juanita Walford was not in attendance. Like Lily Jones, Juanita was a very devout, very religious woman. If the church was open, she was there. After the service, Pastor Wells sent two men to go check in on her, and these men didn't even make it to Juanita's front door before they could see that it was kicked open. As they slowly approached to peek inside, they were hit with an awful smell, and then they clearly saw blood. Immediately, they contacted the police. One of the first investigators called to the scene was our main man, Captain J.C. Ryder of the Fort Smith Police Department. I love that name. He is the coolest guy. J.C. Ryder. J.C. He said he knew what he was going to find because he recognized that smell. 
He knew there was a body just waiting to be discovered, and then there in the back bedroom was the deceased body of Juanita Walford. Police can always have hope for finding a victim alive, but based off the crime scene, they knew better. Not only was the door knocked in, it had been kicked so hard it had been knocked off his hinges. There were wooden shards from the door all over the place. There was a trail of blood leading from the door to the bedroom, which left nothing to their imagination. It was a very violent scene. Miss Walford herself was displayed, laying on her bed as if the killer felt nothing towards her. Her face was unrecognizable from the beatings. She had defensive wounds on her hands and her arms. She had numerous stab wounds. Her body was nude, indicating that she had been raped as well. At the autopsy, police would learn that she had been laying there up to two days and that her sexual assault was post-mortem. Along with the blood, there, were, there was another substance found in the house. It was later determined to be urine. There was also a handprint kind of smeared on the wall above the bed, and then there was a shoe impression above the couch on the living room wall. Did she live pretty close to the elderly lady? Yeah. She did? A couple miles, maybe. Okay. The crime scene investigators noticed that on the couch were these impressions as if the killer didn't want to track back through that trail of blood when he left. So he climbed on the furniture to go around it. Miss Walford's house had been a little more difficult to investigate because it didn't appear that she was a very tidy woman anyways. Her house was already a bit messy, but they would end up coming across a nightgown that had a semen stain on it, and they took that into evidence. So she lived alone? Yes. Yeah. Police compared the two scenes in cases of Lily Jones and Juanita Walford. Both had similar forced entries, a cut screen door and a kicked-in front door, both elderly, both living independently, both suffered great violence. Both homes were even similar in the way they looked, like they were built around the same time, they had the same structure, the same kind of greenery out front. And they're near that church? Or no? And they never really said how close it was to the church. And I couldn't, I looked, I looked for Baptist churches in the vicinity of both the homes. And there's a few, so there's no telling which one it was. And they did live very close in proximity to each other. The two homes also had another connection. And it was the fact that there was a set of railroad tracks by them. The police decided to use this to their advantage there had been no witnesses to either crime, so they needed to figure out how to reach out to the public for any help. A certain number of officers were sent to monitor the tracks, interview anybody that came across them, more patrolled the streets for anyone who was out at a weird hour or behaving oddly, and they would interview them as well. Of course, tips start to pull in from the residents from Fort Smith, offering up theories and suspects. If the people of Fort Smith weren't offering their insights, they were panicking. This type of thing just doesn't happen in their town, let alone to two elderly women. It was about this time, June or July of 1993, that the media dubbed the unknown assailant as the River Valley Killer. According to don'tnamethem.org, it is journalistically routine to name the killer. When the media does this, they're going to focus on the attacks and the attacker and not give focus on the victims. Media can often press the killer into attacking again to give more recognition. 
The U.S. Constitution gives the freedom of speech and the freedom of press. There's nothing that can be done to stop sensationalizing the killer. Rather than being ashamed of his or her actions, the killer gets to relive the scenes with every mention in the media. I just wanted to throw that in. Some criminal mind stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Between July 1993 and the end of the year, the police learned of two potential suspects, Captain Ryder and Stephen Tabor, who is a deputy prosecutor, received tips from the public and known relatives of Anthony Barnes. Barnes was known to the police. He was known to be unstable, and he frequently would walk the railroad tracks. He had a arrest record full of assault and battery charges. He was a bit of a drunk, and he carried a hunting knife. He was brought in for questioning. He denied at these allegations, and he agreed to submit a DNA sample. He even agreed to let Miss Lily Jones touch his hair. She knew that that was not the hair of the same man that had attacked her, so both her and his DNA would end up clearing him. Wow. So just by him saying that, I'm sure J.C. Ryder was like, oh, he's not the guy. Right. If he's going to let the old lady feel his hair like that, yeah. I know. I was like, whoa, big step. Yeah. The next viable tip comes from a young man named Jonathan Keith Cole. And he knows that a buddy of his, Joe Gibbs, has been burglarizing homes in the area, and one of them was Juanita Walford's home. We'll never trust a man with three first names. No shit. Cole said that Joe Gibbs kicked in the door, and when he realized that Juanita was home, he used a piece of the door frame as a weapon and killed her. Naturally, Captain Ryder and the rest of the force go looking for him. They get Joe Gibbs to come in, and they let him know about Cole's visit to them and what was said. Joe Gibbs denied everything Jonathan Cole said. He says he's never broken into a home, and he's definitely never killed anyone. Those are some strong accusations. I uh, know. He's ready to prove his innocence, so Gibbs, he agrees to give them a semen sample so the crime lab could compare it to the sample on Juanita's nightgown. At this point in time, the forensics team had already discovered and told Captain Ryder that the attacker was known as a secretor. You learned about that, didn't you, in one of your cases? No. Well, being a secretor just means they can tell your blood type in your fluids. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did. But not... I know it's called that. Yeah, but not everybody is a secretor. Like, Joe Gibbs is not a secretor, so he was ruled out, like, quickly because of a test. Okay. By this point, Ryder and his team decided to start running through the interview cards and the statements to try and see what... They miss. There has to be a witness or even the murderer himself lost in the stack of cards. Maybe they would come across someone who just knew a little bit too much about the crime scene at Juanita's home. As the police are going through this strategy, it's now January of 1994. And these two sisters come into the police department and they decide to tell Captain Ryder about their brother, Danny Bennett. Danny Bennett had what the sisters called, quote-unquote, odd habits. They knew that he was abusive to anyone he dated, physically, sexually, emotionally, but he also had this obsession with urinating on them. 
Like some R. R Kelly shit. (laughs) And it's technically called urolagnia. And it's basically just a fetish that the urinator gets real excited at the sight of urine or or the idea of it and urinating on their partner. The urinator. That's right. (laughs) And Bennett also hated their mother. He lived within the vicinity of the two attacks, Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Walford. He almost lived like right smack in the middle. And wouldn't you know it, he had been interviewed while walking on the tracks. So a lot of things are pointing to him being their man, including this Navy trucker hat that had been found near the tracks behind Juanita Walford's home. The hat said, no beer, no work, and the sisters recognized it as being Danny's. Captain Ryder and the team were able to get a warrant to search Danny Bennett's house and one for his arrest. When they entered his residence, they were astounded at the crazy large amount of bottles all over his house, just full of urine. Gross. Disgusting. He have a toilet? Weirdo. It was almost the end of January 1994, and they were interrogating Danny Bennett. He admitted to the murder of Juanita Walford. He was able to describe the scene and the events. He also confessed to attacking Lily Jones. Following his arrest, he submits his DNA. Both hair and blood samples were taken, and they were sent off to be tested. Everyone is like, the Fort Smith Police Department has done it. After almost a year, the town can breathe a sigh of relief. This alleged River Valley killer was behind bars and awaiting trial. But was it him? It takes almost 10 months for a return on his samples, and he is not a match. So he just wanted the fame? Kinda, I guess. The prosecution wants to still proceed with charges, but that doesn't sit right, obviously, with Captain Ryder because he knows that's not the right guy and the real killer is still out there. Yeah, probably looking for his next victim. Just like another unlucky notch on the belt, there is a third victim. August 10th, 1995, 74-year-old Ruth Pearl Adams Henderson was brutally attacked and killed in Van Buren, which is in Crawford County, and Fort Smith is in Sebastian County. So this was like two years later almost? Just about. Her attack happened while Danny Bennett was still in jail. Before Danny... Bennett is set to be released. Prosecutors go through the interview tapes and notes just to make sure they don't need to keep him on some sort of charge. And there's an officer that brings Ron Fields, who's just one of the other prosecutors that works there. He brings him this tape and he says, you need to listen to it. It's the first in the series. And and Fields is like, no, I have them all. And the officer is like, well, this was prior to the actual interview of Danny Bennett. The police is smoking gun evidence. The one thing no one outside the Juanita Walford crime scene knew was the bloody shoe print on the wall above the couch. Danny Bennett admitted to it in his interview, but come to find out that in that very first tape recording of him, one of the officers mentioned it, giving him a leading question about it. So when he was actually interviewed that second time around, he could answer. 
So that plus the DNA result meant that Danny was not their guy, and he was released just months before trial was to start. At Ruth Henderson's residence, it looked like someone just went copy-paste. On the scene is the Crawford County Sheriff's Department, and there is a man, Danny Phillips, not Danny Bennett, Danny Phillips, that is an investigator for the department. Per protocol, in the event of a homicide, a prosecutor is called to the scene. Danny Phillips contacts Ron Fields because he knows exactly what he's saying. When Fields arrived, he knew what he was saying. So Fields then calls Captain Ryder from Fort Smith and asked him to come to the scene. And based on that call, Captain Ryder already knew what he was going to end up seeing when he got there. The Henderson house looked almost identical to Juanita Walford's. It was the same pattern of attack, the kicked-in door, the blood trail, the beating that Miss Henderson took, the stab wounds, the sexual assault post-mortem. She was another elderly woman living on her own. She was a widow. Her husband had passed away in 1986. Captain Ryder was quoted saying, it was spooky. It was almost like walking into the Walford house. But there was no uh, urine stains at this one. In the years to follow... Former prosecutor and now judge Stephen Tabor would go on to say that he's pretty certain that Danny Bennett was the man that urinated at the Walford house. He thinks Bennett had entered, you know, that 28 to 48 hour span after the killer had left. That's how he knew so much about the crime scene. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Five years go by after Ruth Henderson's attack with no incidents. Nothing. Nothing happens in the River Valley region until a 911 call comes in on a late afternoon in March 2000. Many sources left out the actual date, but I think it may have been March 28th, so towards the end of the month. 911 dispatch received a call from a frantic young woman. She tells the dispatcher, I'm bleeding to death. This guy just raped me. I'm bleeding. He cut my throat and he raped me. Her mother jumped on the call to confirm everything and gave more details, even though she was just as panicked. Moments before this call was made, the parents... Falco's dreaming. Moments before this call was made, the parents of this 16-year-old girl, who is never named, ever, not even now, they arrived home just as she was being attacked. Sheila and James Qualls had gone to visit some folks. They left their daughter at the house. When they are almost back home, they can see that the neighbor's truck is in their driveway. As soon as they pulled up, they heard the screams of their daughter. James runs inside only to find Charles Ray Vines, their neighbor and friend, assaulting her. Charles Ray Vines was in the middle of raping and stabbing the poor girl, and she was doing her best to fight him off. Her daddy didn't waste any time. James Qualls yanks vines off her and starts wailing on him. He yells to his wife, who was on the phone with 911, to go get his pistol. Once he has his pistol in hand, he pulled the trigger, and as luck would have it, it misfired. He finagles with it. He gets it ready for a second attempt. He fired and barely just missed vines. So he just takes it upon himself to start beating him. With his pistol. Hell yeah. So much so that a piece broke off. This man 
This father said he must have beat vines for what felt like 20 minutes before first responders arrived. I think my favorite part of the Snapped Notorious episode was when they were interviewing James Qualls, and he said that the EMTs were like, we need to get vines out of there quickly. And James said, if anyone's leaving first, it's going to be my daughter. And then he proceeded to pretty much block anyone from reaching Vines's body. It was really cool hearing this story from J.C. Ryder at the True Crime Fest because he remembered everything like it was yesterday. Right. Danny Phillips from Crawford County learned from the girl what had happened right before they carted her off. She says she was home alone when Vines came over. She knew him. The family knew him. She didn't feel like she was in danger. He came inside and was sitting with her in the living room on the couch. At some point, he got up and he went to the kitchen only to return with the knife. And then he started to attack her. Something that investigator Phillips noticed on her were her injuries. And then he starts looking around the crime scene and it clicked. The similarities and the patterns from a case he knew of in 95 in Crawford County, which was Ruth Henderson, and a case from 93 in Fort Smith, Juanita Walford. The biggest connection with this girl and these other women was this violence that they were all stabbed in the head and the neck and then the sexual assault and the drag marks and the trail of blood. When these bells start going off in his head, he calls up Captain Ryder and he informs him that he might just have the guy for real this time. As Vines was in the hospital recovering, a warrant for his DNA and blood was obtained. Those samples were then sent off. Who is this Charles Ray Vines? The man the media dubbed the River Valley Killer? I'm going to run you through a bit of a timeline talk a few points in that little mix right there, and then we'll go about our business. So Vines was born June 3rd, 1963. He was from a very well-known, very respectable family in Fort Smith. His parents ran a mortuary business. His father, Ray Neal Vines, was a funeral director for over 50 years. He was also the chief deputy coroner. His mother was Barbara Jean. He had two brothers, Marshall and Craig. We all know that just because you come from a good family doesn't mean you can't have a bad apple. And Charles Ray was that bad apple. He was arrested several times as a juvenile. He was about 17 or so when he was court-ordered into rehab for drugs and alcohol. These were his favorite pastime activities for almost five years at that point. He was released. He stayed under the radar until he started to do some petty crimes like shoplifting. But it seemed like he would start to wise up because he started taking some courses at the community college in Fort Smith. I read that he joined the military for a short time as well. In 1985, he married Crystal Witten of Pecola, but that didn't last very long. She would divorce him in 1989 after the birth of their second son. From an interview with her, It wasn't always bad. It seemed like Vines had two versions. Version one, good guy. He built a garden for his wife. He helped his neighbors mend fences. He drove old ladies to church. He gave away the extra vegetables from his garden. After the divorce, he never missed a child support payment. Version two, on the other hand, was the drugged and drunk out of his mind man with no morals, full of violence. Winton said that He was the kind of guy you would want to have 
as your neighbor. But then she gives an example of his dark side. He beat up their oldest son. He had threatened him with a gun and he had stabbed him. The son has a scar on his elbow to prove it. Yeah. Vines had also beat up on his wife. He had once thrown her from the porch while she was pregnant with their second child. And he had locked her up in their house or out in the shed in the back. Okay. Following the divorce in 89. So he had a few red flags. Just a couple. Following the divorce in 89, Vines may have lived in Hoyt or Hoyt County, Missouri for some time because there are records of him filing for bankruptcy in 1992. He returned at some point to Fort Smith and worked at Ocker Putnam Funeral Home, which is where his father was the director at the time. In 93 were the attacks on Lily Jones in April and Juanita Walford in June. In October 1994, this one is kind of curious. So he's like 30, 31 years old right now, or at that time. He, uh, when he gets arrested, he's 36. So yeah, he's making his way that way. Like I said, this is, this is a little bit of a curious case. It piqued my interest. In October of 1994, there was a body dumped in Dora, Oklahoma, which is just a few feet away from the Welcome to Arkansas sign and the state borders. Witnesses gave a physical and car description of those matching vines. The thing about this body was that it had been dead for several months, and it was possible that it was a cadaver. Besides the descriptions, the body of Dora Doe, which is what they're calling her because she was found in Dora, Oklahoma. The body of Dora Doe had been found wrapped in that black landscaping mesh, you know, that you put down before you. Yeah. Yeah. And Vines did that kind of work on the side. And I wanted to bring up Dora Doe because experts did a facial reconstruction and used the facial markers to make out that she was either a Caucasian with Asian or of indigenous ancestry. And this is important because while Vines was in Missouri, he apparently married a Native American woman, perhaps named Karen, but no one has ever been able to find her. Hmm. So hopefully that wasn't her and she's lived or is living a full life. Claims that he was this man seen were never proven, and technically that case of Dordo is still open. The same year as Dordo in 94, Vines started to build a cabin in Dripping Springs, Arkansas. Dripping Springs is a little hidden spot towards the borders of Oklahoma and Arkansas. It's north of Fort Smith. It's in the Van Buren area, and it looks beautiful. Like, I'd be down to go up there and hike. It's got camping spots, trails, waterfalls. There was speculation why he chose this area for his cabin. It's secluded, yes. But the rumor is that if you stood on the deck and looked out, you could see a cemetery. Mm. And you'll understand why I told you that shortly if you don't already know this about him. I already know. I know. In August of 95 was Ruth Henderson's murder. Then there's that five years off, and then March of 2000 is the attack on the 16-year-old girl. So back to it. It's March 28th, 29th-ish in the year 2000, and 36-year-old Charles Ray Vines has had his blood drawn and is quickly compared to the samples of Lily Jones, Juanita Walford, 
and Ruth Henderson. The tests conclude that he has been the man they've searched for for the last seven years. He was arrested and charged with Juanita Walford and Ruth Henderson's murders and the rape and the attempted murder of the 16-year-old girl. Because of the statute of limitations, he could not be charged in the rape of Lily Jones. The Quest, question. The, the 16-year-old girl's father didn't get in trouble for anything, right? Good. Not that I read anywhere, and he was proud of it on that interview, I so bet. he wasn't shy of talking about what happened. The police and prosecution had enough between the others to charge him with the death penalty. Vines decided to not speak to the police, and he got his attorney. In doing so, his attorney and the prosecution agreed on a plea deal that if he confessed to the crimes, the death penalty would be taken off the table. They had what they needed, though. They even need a plea right there. They want to know why. For this deal to stay in place, Vines had to admit guilt and give details to each crime. If he lies or is caught in a lie, the deal would be void. It would be about a year later when they finally have their chance to sit down with him. In the interview with Vines, Captain Ryder and investigator Danny Phillips have him start at the beginning with Lily Jones, to which he swears is the first time he's ever done something like this. During the interview, he claimed it was so long ago, he couldn't remember the details, and I'm sure the investigators were like, bullshit. 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 They were thinking this guy isn't going to play along, so Captain Ryder tells his attorney, he's like, listen, if he doesn't give us more, this deal's off. So that kicked him and kicked Vines in the butt, and he, you know, turned around real quick. He started to tell them about these sexual urges that he didn't necessarily like. So in order to satisfy them, he had to be drunk and high. He admitted that he could and would almost daily down a fifth of whiskey. Sometimes all he did was smoke weed, but he's also done cocaine, speed, meth, the works. The night of Mrs. Jones' attack, he'd been out drinking and the bars were closing down and he was headed home. But he found himself at her front door. He knew he wanted to have sex with or without her consent. Captain Ryder asked him, how did you stumble across Mrs. Jones? And Vines told him that he's known her his whole life from going to church with his parents. His goal with Miss Jones was to satisfy those sexual urges to assault her and cause her to pass away naturally, not to kill her himself. So that way, when he had sex with her, she'd already be dead. And if you remember earlier, I said that Miss Walford's corpse and Mrs. Henderson's were also assaulted post-mortem. You can see now why it would seem that he would need to be fucked up to have sex because he's a necrophiliac. And it almost seems like it was going to happen to him regardless. He grew up around death, helping out in his family's business. If you think about it, when he was maturing, getting close to those teenage years... He must have seen numerous dead women in the mortuary. What was that show, uh, Blackbird, with the creepy guy? Yeah. He worked at, like, he, that was his job, too, and he had to go down there with the with the dead bodies. Yeah. I'm not saying that's an excuse for what happened and this habit that formed, but you can kind of see the connection. And now you know why it was appealing for him to live across from a 
cemetery. Captain Ryder asked Fines why Juanita Walford. He said he knew that she would be an easy target. She lived next to a buddy of his. They had a slight interaction one time. Miss Walford hated that Vines's buddy had this motorcycle and it was loud and it caused a disturbance. One day she goes over there to talk to the friend about quieting down and Vines saw her and he just knew she would do. Unlike with Lily Jones, he meant to beat her to death. Did did they ask him <laughs> if he peed on at the crime scene? In a minute. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> He said that having sex with her corpse after attacking her was the ultimate high. When Captain Ryder asked him, on a scale from 1 to 10, where did having sex with a deceased woman fall? Vines answered, a 14. It was like that feeling that made your eyes roll into the back of your head. Could you imagine like sitting there and having to listen to this... I was, trash. I was just thinking, like, imagine being J.C. Ryder there. Like, did he have Ugh. all these questions ready, or is he just on the spot coming up with... I'm sure both. Gosh. he probably just want to reach across the table and strangle mm-hmm. him right then. Investigator Danny Phillips asked, why did you urinate all over the scene? And Vines denied doing this. After all he said, why would he start lying now? Earlier, I said Stephen Tabor, one of the prosecutors, I mean, he was already certain that Danny Bennett was the one that, you know, urinated all over the scene, which would hold some validity to that theory, especially because there was no urine at any other of the crime scenes. Vines' attack on Ruth Henderson was the same as the other two women, She lived alone. She was elderly. She lived not far from his house, and he knew she, too, would be an easy target. He had that feeling, that urge, and he needed to satisfy it. I didn't find out much about him during that five-year period between Miss Henderson and the 16-year-old. He was probably just digging up bodies or something. Oh, God. that's There weren't reports... In the area of any of us, like of a similar MO, but that doesn't mean that he was still living in that area. For all we know, he could have moved elsewhere and done the same thing. I am curious if that's what happened or if he got sober or like you just said, maybe he was digging up dead ladies. Regardless, prior to the 16 year old, he had it figured out and it was the change in his MO that got him caught. He had never had sex with a minor before then, so why her? She may not have been elderly, but his violence could have led to the end of her life, so circling back to that necrophilia. If her parents hadn't returned home when they did, she would have died. Was she in the the YouTube documentary? Not her herself, but her parents. Her parents spoke. She was just as helpless as the elderly victims, too, He knew that he could overpower her, and he saw that she was home alone. If it wasn't for her attack and him getting caught, there is no doubt in the police's mind that he would have struck again. So who knows how many more times and how long he would have gone before he was caught. Once the police and the prosecution concluded that he had told them everything, the plea deal was accepted, 
The judge looked over the terms and agreed. Charles Reed Vines was given three life terms without the possibility of parole. Vines spent 18 years in prison. In September of 2019, he died from natural causes at the age of 56. After hearing of his passing, James Qualls, the dad of the 16-year-old, said, I was tickled to death to hear it. He's in hell now. His daughter, who's now in her 30s, is still unknown to the public, which I'm glad to hear that she's still unnamed. Well, but, I'm sure you could probably find her name. I know. I almost, parents. I almost started like downward spiraling. I was like, no, no, no. Let her be. But she has struggled in life, which is sad to hear, but kind of also expected from what she went through. Yeah, if he stabbed her in the face and... Slit her throat. Yeah, she's scars and everything to deal with but especially traumatized right i would say i'm sure physically and mentally it hasn't been easy whoever wherever she is i hope she's gotten help on a more positive note lily jones who was 89 at the time of her attack lived to see her attacker be put away she died at 100 years old wow and that is the case of Charles Ray Vines, the River Valley Killer. She lived to hear her attacker be put in prison. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So I had a couple other points that I didn't have, like, in the actual story right there. I was just going to mention them at the end. Go ahead. Okay. Going back to Juanita Walford's autopsy, it was said that in her stab wound was foreign lung tissue which must have been on the weapon already. In Dora Doe's case, her lungs and her heart had been removed, which is another reason they speculated she was probably a cadaver. And the tissues were tested and they didn't match Dora Doe. So was there another victim prior to Juanita Walford? And he used the same knife? Maybe. And there were also... Speculations that he liked to go to Cove Lake in Paris, Arkansas. It's one of his favorite campground spots. So are there bodies being dug up in that area when he was there? Or someone get attacked in that area and never reported it? This is, I know you'll like this part. His mother was an avid bowler in a lot of leagues. He used to carry around a pool cue because he loved to play pool. This is one of the reasons he was looked at for the Melissa Witt case because she was taken from a... Bowling alley. That's right. Now, there's a lot of differences between her death and case and his victims, and he went on record denying any involvement, but it's still kind of very eerie. It was the same year, 94, in Fort Smith. And then another thing that I noticed when I was researching is The railroad tracks there in Fort Smith, where the police assume connected Lily Jones and Juanita Walford's homes, also ran along Jenny Lind Road. And Jenny Lind Road is where Ocker Putnam Funeral Home was, where his dad was the funeral director and he worked. Hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. It all ties together. It does in some way. It really does. Well, good job, love. Oh, it's a doozy. I did hear on that revamped episode or the revamped podcast talking about another reason they were trying to connect him to Melissa Witt was he had worked in a cemetery that was 
like adjacent to where her body was found. There was a cemetery out there in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. J.C. Rodder seemed to think it wasn't him, though. No. Well, you know, you and I talked about him. We think it was that other guy who's already yeah. been put away and died. Because she, did, she didn't even have any stab wounds like that, did she? I think she was strangled. Yeah. I haven't finished reading that book yet. Ah. Uh, I've you, read three books in the last week. I just haven't touched that one. I know. Jesse like rolls over in the middle of the night. I'm like, <laughs> Good Lord. Did I? Ripley. Hey. We're trying to record here, girl. Walk under or go around. Pick a direction. Put it in reverse. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We will be back again next week. I've got another Arkansas case for you guys. So until next time. Stay local. Shop local. Murder local. <laughs>